radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio and on FreeCR. And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Ari. All right. So before we get into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge um, that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded, and that FreeCR Community Radio and Green Left Radio will always support um, Indigenous sovereignty and the struggle for land rights, decolonisation and sovereignty. Okay, so in terms of, um, I guess for the first part of the program, um, usually what we like to kind of cover is um, any sort of kind of recent sort of headline kind of news that has sort of... Um, kind of dominated the headlines or of interest to what we want to kind of comment on. And I guess the kind of first kind of story I want to sort of talk about for the start of the program is the federal government has um, basically just um, for people who might not necessarily be aware, just in case for listeners, because um, there are listeners who are not necessarily out of work, um, the federal government um, during the during these sort of extended kind of periods of lockdown has has essentially um, you know from the from almost the beginning, vaguely the beginning. I mean, they kind of introduced this a bit late, as in early in the um, in terms of New, um, in terms of the New South Wales and then Victoria sort of lockdowns. Essentially, that um, any anyone who has sort of lost kind of work, um, you know, from up to if you've lost work for up to twenty over twenty hours, you get I think like six hundred or seven hundred a week or or so. Uh, if you've lost around between eight and less than twenty hours of work, then you get up to four hundred fifty. Now, this is the known as the sort of disaster sort of um, emergency sort of payment, which is sort of delivered through Centlink. Anyway, what um, what um, the federal government has essentially just announced is that they're going to be cutting all those um, welfare provisions and programs for those who have been, because essentially these are for these. This program has been for people who have um, lost work as a result of the pandemic and um, or or who are not working as a result of you know the fact that work um, um you're living in a hot spot and living with COVID restrictions and business um and your workplace is shut down etc. So essentially the government has basically made the announcement that they're going to be cutting all of it um in re- in response to um vaccination rates. So essentially they've implied that um by the time that um we nationally get up to 70 to 80 percent sort of double vaccination rate, they'll be pulling back the emergency kind of payments and cut, um phasing them out. And yeah, I mean Ari, you want to sort of comment? It's very like um the job keeper thing. Or the the increases to job seeker and um, 
Oz study and such, in that they were definitely cut too early, and same with this, it's going to be cut too early. <clears throat> and Morrison has talked about, oh, there's going to be jobs returning as we, you know, the lockdowns ease because of vaccination numbers, but, like, even if that is true, it's not going to be many jobs because businesses are still going to be running at reduced capacity, at least for a while, after the lockdowns start to ease. <clears throat> so, once again, they're going to cut back these um, disaster payments, as they call it, or, you know, these kind of welfare uh, pandemic support payments, and it's only going to really affect the working class because, of course, they're not going to cut back business subsidies because we're not actually out of the problem area yet. Mm. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of interesting kind of thing about the announcement. The, the federal government has basically said, um, has basically singled um, that um, essentially businesses are going to continue to get supported um but we have to cut but we have to cut these emergency payments uh, despite the fact that actually in terms of the impacts of this pandemic it's going to obviously disproportionately impact on casual workers um because essentially with any even though you know the government has been committed to this sort of reopening kind of strategy even though things are going to be reopened, there still are going to be a level of public health restrictions. Um, so, for example, you know, most hospitality, um, most venues, they're not going to be operating at the normal pre-pandemic capacity. They're going to be redu- operating at a reduced capacity. And essentially, from the perspective of any business, they're not going to want to pay for the labour costs to pay for, um, to put the same number of workers that they had pre-pandemic. They're going to be cutting costs, essentially, to make mm. profit, while also pocketing all the business support they're going, because obviously, you know... Well, businesses are going for a hard time because of this lockdown and pandemic, so they've got to invest and save, and, and essentially that's where a lot of the business support is going. To be. It's just going to be justified. At not, it's not going to go to workers. It's just going to be going to the pockets of the of the of the business owners um, for their own sort of investments, etc. Yeah, of course, as all business subsidies are always going to go to. <coughs> Even with the the JobKeeper payments, as we know, even though they were supposed to support keeping on workers, they mostly, well, I don't know about mostly, but a massive amount of that money went into just the pockets of businesses, of course. And this cutback of disaster payments is going to, aside, you know, not necessarily aside from casual workers, because a lot of the people are casual workers, but it's also going to, of course, disproportionately affect migrant workers or people who are on visas that don't allow them to apply for JobSeeker, for example, who are going to lose all of their welfare, all of their support payments, because the government, you know, is cutting back support payments, but of course isn't going to let anybody who couldn't before apply for JobSeeker. Mm. So even if they're talking about, you know, bringing down these payments to align with JobSeeker or whatever, or, um, you know, saying that I think Morrison said that the existing welfare system will account for people who stay, stay out of work or whatever, that's not going to be true, of course, because migrant workers aren't allowed, aren't able to apply for JobSeeker, aren't able to receive welfare payments outside of these disaster payments and stuff. Hmm. So, yeah, I think it's definitely an outrageous move um, by the government to cut these emergency payments early. And I guess that gets into a kind of next kind of story I kind of want to discuss. And that is, I mean, probably our listeners are probably aware that um, I'm not sure what, I don't know what the today's case numbers are for Victoria, but I 
but the Victoria unfortunately had a huge jump in cases. In fact, probably for the past few weeks, I've kind of stopped caring about um, COVID cases because I mean it's become clear, as we've sort of spoken about before, that you know it's it's in some sense become a bit irrelevant because the government's already committed to sort of reopening and they've kind of abandoned uh, any sort of elimination strategy. But this was, I'll have to note, yesterday was definitely a significant jump. So, in fact, Victoria has just um, jumped to 1,500 cases a day. Um, and, in fact, I think it was that's up from, like, the sort of 700 to 800 sort of area. So that's a big boost in numbers. And in fact, it also sort of reflects, it probably reflects certain things um, about, you know, because essentially there has been a lot of arguments being put forward about, you know, the differences in the state government kind of responses around lockdowns. And, you know, in some sense, um, Victoria is actually, um, um, the, the COVID time bank is, is going almost as out of control as, say, New South Wales did, except Victoria actually locked down far earlier. But it doesn't, it appears that there hasn't necessarily been much of difference when you look at the overall kind of big picture. Although that said, I mean, there's obviously lots of um, points to sort of do. But anyway, one thing that sort of struck me is, okay, so one of the things that was reported about this surge in cases has that there is evidence and, you know, all the contract tracers did the work and, you know, a, a large section of the cases were linked to a legal grand final Gatherings. Now, the grand final happened to kind of last weekend. Now, obviously, I think we're not necessarily kind of defending the fact that, you know, I don't think, I think that is, it is irresponsible to do. But I mean, I think I was sort of watching the kind of Daniel Andrews kind of press conference and what was sort of quoted in the media. Daniel Andrews sort of did this whole thing of kind of blaming people for kind of breaking kind of the rules, etc., giving that sort of moralistic sort of blame on the individuals. And I think, that I think misses a kind of few things. And I think the first thing is, I think, you know, from the perspective of, of, of any sort of imposing any sort of lockdown, Victoria has actually been in the lockdown for a quite a long extended periods of time. Mm. And so essentially you pop, you, that probably leads to a situation where there isn't, um, there is going to be, um, compliance is probably going to drop. Um, I just think that it's not realistic to expect. 100% compliance at all times, especially with these sort of lockdown kind of restrictions. But also I think, you know, while, yes, it is definitely not good that the cases have surged, prior to this surge in cases from illegal um, household kind of gatherings, the cases in Victoria were kind of already not good um, to begin with. And essentially I think, you know, before Daniel Andrews um, kind of blames kind of individuals for spreading kind of the virus, I think the government needs to actually be thinking about its own sort of fairies because really, I mean, one of the kind of interesting kind of things is um, to note is a lot of the cases um, have been have been found in disproportionately working class um, suburbs like the northwest, um, the western suburbs, um, which is generally suburbs with high populations of essential workers, people who still have to work during this pandemic. And I, and you know, in terms of all these kind of announcements, the government, you know, the government has been, you know, pushing vaccination. That that's all good. But I don't think the government the government has not been, you know. Put, um, taking a lead in terms of um, implementing protections of essential workers, ensuring that workplaces are COVID safe. They haven't even been doing a real assessment of, you know, what workplaces should be kept open. And should, I mean, while a good section of workplaces are closed down prior to probably this, um, prior to probably this um, 
previous lockdowns, there's probably less businesses. There's probably a lot of businesses that are still being open that are not necessarily essential. And so, in some sense, lockdowns are a lot more lax in that sense. But I think, you know, the fact that the government is not doing that, and of course, as we were sort of talking about, we we're sort of talking about this whole, um, about the whole, um, cutting back of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. You know, the fact is, the government, you know, the state government could be doing a lot more in terms, in the Daniel Andrews government, in terms of actually demanding uh, or lobbying the federal government for the reinstatement of those, those measures or alternative sort of income sort of measures and, and support. And yeah, because essentially, you know, if you don't want people to leave home um, during a sort of um, a punitive kind of lockdown, which has very heavy restrictions on our people's own individual social activity, then yeah, essentially, you know, you need to, there needs to be the income support in place. So yeah, I had a bit of an issue, I think, my kind of issue with, with sort of Daniel Andrews' comments, um, because I think really, you know, there's, there's a lit area by which, you know, the government has to take responsibility for their own failures, um, for this COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, yeah, it's, it goes much more thoroughly to the, towards the federal government who have constantly kind of failed in terms of controlling pandemic and also serving the interests of working class people. Yeah, for sure. And I think that pointing out the, the kind of moralism of Daniel Andrews' statement is a really good, uh, point is like it, pardon me, is a very important thing to point out in terms of that sort of thing. Because, like, even though, yes, you know, these gatherings aren't, were not obviously a good idea, you know, people shouldn't have done them, but, like, whatever, it's done. <clears throat> and it doesn't seem like there's actually any use to blaming the, anybody, really. Like, <clears throat> it doesn't really, at this point, it doesn't really matter why it happened. As long as, like, like you said, all the contact tracing has been... Well, I don't know if it's fully finished, but a lot of the contract contact tracing has been done. A lot of the information has been gathered. It doesn't matter as much, like, why it happened at this point. It matters what we can do to alleviate both the spike in cases and also the circumstances that led to it happening, right? So, like, like you said, if the government's not going to support people to stay home or the government's not going to support businesses to stay closed or whatever, whatever the case may be... <clears throat> then people are going to have much more of a motivation, I would say, to to kind of to not comply with certain lockdown measures. If they realistically, if there's a need for people to do certain things to survive, but also like social interaction is a very important part of kind of, in a way, human like survival, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, during this whole lockdown and stuff, I, of course, have, you know, been doing basically nothing. And let me tell you, it's not been good for my brain. <laughs> so, you know, again, not exactly supporting people who are breaking the rules, uh, having these barbecues and whatever for the grand final, but, like, the motivation makes a lot of sense. And it doesn't seem very helpful at this point to say, you know, all these people have ruined everything for us forever or whatever. Like, what we should be doing is looking at, again... What can we do now that this has happened? Because it's happened and there's nothing we can do about it. And like, how can we try and alleviate the circumstances that led to it happening? Yeah. And also, I think the, ma the main thing is obviously, okay, I think as socialists, I mean, we obviously have the conception that, you know, for, for most, the majority of us, we don't actually have any control over this pandemic response. We live yeah. in a capitalist world. A lot of, because we live in a capitalist world governed by a capitalist state, essentially all these decisions are made 
on the pandemic response, you know, what happens, what businesses get support, what pe- what people get. They're all being yeah, made by yeah. a very slim minority uh, yeah. within society. So essentially, you know, for the government to go and blame individuals actually, you know, go, it, it's very problematic when you look at it that way because, you know, you have to acknowledge that us as ordinary working people, we don't actually have any real say over this pandemic songs other than other than the fact that we other than the fact that the government has to is is in some sense making decisions based on the level of political costs and sport and obviously making all those calculations yeah anyway um might have to just conclude this discussion because we're going to go into probably our first interview for the program um you are listening to green left radio a message from victoria's community sector i'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of covid to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. All right. Um, You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And for our first guest of the program, um, we're very happy to um, have Sibylla on our program. Um, Sibylla is a socialist activist. In fact, she was actually, um, she's actually been a guest for the beginning of the Green Left um, radio program when, um, when, um, when we just first started. Um, but she's just re- been based, she has been based in Germany for the past several years, um, until returning back to Australia this year, and has also been previously active with, uh, Delinka, um, the left, um, party in, um, Germany. And just recently, Germany, um, German had, um, elections over the last kind of weekend. And so we have, um, we have Spill on to have a bit of discussion about that. So good morning, Sibylla. Good morning to you and your listeners. Okay, so I guess the first kind of question um, is, um, Sibylla, is essentially, from my understanding, um, um, with the kind of election results, is that it was a bit of a shock kind of result for the ruling party, um, the CDU, um, who essentially lost um, to the Social Democratic Party of Germany, um, who have claimed victory over the CDU. Um, although that said, the, um, the, the SPD doesn't necessarily have a majority. And I guess, what can you tell us about the kind of reasons for this kind of upset, and I guess about and especially in the context of the general results of the election. Start by um, painting a little bit of a picture of the results first. So it is true that the Social Democratic Party, the SPD, has had the largest amount of votes. However, this is marginal. We're talking about 25.7% of the votes as opposed to 24.1, so we're really talking about 1.6% um, ahead of the CDU Merkel's, Angela Merkel's old party. So, um, yes, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, is the largest party now in Germany after this election. However, it is marginal. So let's just put that out there first so that 
people can get a little bit of a sense that this is not like a huge victory for um, the Social Democratic Party. The, the big winners in this election has been the Greens, without a doubt. They got an increase from the previous election, which was in 2017, by 6.4%. This is like, um, it was to be expected in, in, to some degree, but that's certainly a huge increase. They are now sitting at 14.8%, which makes them the third largest party in, in Germany. So that's just to give um, a little bit of a um, picture in terms of the, the winners, so to speak. However, um, what has to be taken into account as well is the enormous, massive loss of the CDU, of Merkel's Conservative Party. And that loss has been at minus 8.8%. That's unheard of and was the, the worst election result for the Conservative Party since 1949. Um, so that just gives um, people a little bit of a picture, I think. Uh, losers also in this election was the left, Die Linke, you just mentioned, the socialist left in, in, in Germany. And they um, had a loss of minus 4.3%, which was very significant. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit later again. Um, and also the far-right party, who had been um, increasing their votes dramatically over the last six years, in particular in state parliament, but federally they also had a loss of minus 2.3%. I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. When it comes to why this is the case, one has to really say this is because of personality and not politics. Um, Voters essentially had to make a decision between three um, candidates for the chancellor position. And the, the, the largest party um, coalition determines the chancellor. And the, the three options on the table, the a candidate for the Social Democratic Party, Olaf Scholz, he was an experienced um, politician who had been in parliament for, for decades um, and I guess instilled some level of um, certainty and, and um, trust in people. Whereas the candidate, um, once Merkel had decided last year that she wasn't going to re-stand um, in the election, the CDU was um, riddled with, with a lot of um, soul-searching who should be the next candidate, and there was a lot of back and forth going on. The person who ended up um, being the candidate, Armin Laschet, he was, as recently as in July, there was a big social media um, disaster when there was big flooding happening in Germany and he was seen laughing at um, in, in the middle of the flooding and that just went haywire on the, on the social media and basically he lost enormous um, amount of, of respect at that point. And the Greens, in fact, um, had uh, the candidate there was a woman, Annalena Baerbock, and she also had a bit of a July... Um, social media disaster when she play, um, published a book and was accused of, of, of plagiarism. So this is just um, a little bit of an imp- first impression. Hmm. And I guess, I mean, 
um, despite the fact that you've kind of you've also said that a lot a lot of this kind of intellectual kind of result can be explained by you know certain sort of um comp- personality politic a, a certain level of kind of personality politics that have nothing to do necessarily with kind of political issues, but I guess obviously with every kind of election there's always there is always sort of politics certainly kind of operating I guess in the background and I guess what. What can you tell us about some of the political issues in Germany that have, in some sense, underpinned the kind of lead-up to the election? Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not saying that politics wasn't an issue. Absolutely, politics are an issue. But um, I think for many um, voters, especially voters who um, are not necessarily set in their views, let's put it that way, and, and what we maybe would call marginal voters, but I don't think that's necessarily the correct term in this context, um, the key political issues were um, the SPD that the SPD put forward, and, and that was very clever. Um, and that was basically, you know, um, pretending, <laughs> let's put it that way, uh, that they're more left than what they were. But they put forward um, a an, an increase of the minimum wage. The minimum wage in Germany was um, is currently nine euros fifty cents. Um, and that was only introduced a few years ago. That's um, it's not a long-standing concept as we've had um, in Australia. And the, the demand was to, for that to be increased to 12 euros, so quite a significant um, increase. Now, just to illustrate, Die Linke had a position to increase uh, the minimum wage to 13 euros. So if you're a voter and you're on the left of politics, centre-left, whatever, and you think, okay, well, the Social Democrats are calling for 12 euros. Yeah, the link of 13 is better, but 12 is pretty close to 13. So if you really want to get rid of the Conservative government, why would you vote for the link for 13 if 12 sounds really good? So that's just, um, that was one, um, like, clear political demand. And another um, political demand that the Social Democrats called for that was very appealing to people was um, to uh, to change the way the health insurance system is run. In Germany, there's compulsory health insurance, and in fact, people pay a lot uh, of their paycheck into the health insurance. Now, if you are um, earning above a certain amount, you can opt to be privately insured. The thing what has been happening, though, is that the privately insured people can also access the public system. So the public system has been um, paying <laughs> for um, like quite well-off people and their health insurance. And, of course, in the COVID pandemic, that has, has come to the fore even more. So the background here is a growing disparity between rich and poor in Germany. And um, the irony, of course, is that this growing gap um, was really fostered by social democratic politics that were introduced um, almost 20 years ago when um, when the SPD government, in coalition with the Greens, introduced enormous um, neoliberal um, policy attacks on, on working conditions, on the unemployed and the welfare system. So... Um, Unfortunately, for voters, that wasn't at the forefront of their uh, memory that really, yes, 
the Social Democrats were putting forward these left-leaning um, policy changes now, but that really the the state of um, the conditions people are living in was largely influenced by um, social democratic politics um, from years ago in the first place. And let me just make a few comments on on the um, CDU. The CDU didn't really have um, much to offer, especially on social security matters and also on old age um, pensions, poverty, again, like a a hugely growing area in Germany. Um, And the CDU has, I mean, Merkel was the chancellor for 16 years, so we've had we've seen the financial crisis during that time, the, um, the so-called refugee crisis in 1516, and, and of course the Corona crisis, and people were really ready for change. Hmm. And I guess um, that gets, I guess, into the kind of one of the other aspects that we're kind of interested in talking to you about. And in fact, we've actually previously had discussions with you um, about this um, in previous programs like um, a number of kind of years ago. But I guess one sort of aspect about German politics um, has been the kind of threat of the far right um, in the form of the AFD. And of course, some things that I've kind of observed, um, although I haven't necessarily read that deeply into it, um, has been, of course, um, I have kind of noticed that there has been a bit of a a kind of anti-lockdown slash anti-sort of vaxxer sort of movement in response to the kind of COVID-19 pandemic response. And I, and I kind of presume, similar to kind of Australia right now, um, that that has a lot of kind of links with um, the sort of far-right kind of forces within Germany. And I guess, what can you tell us about how some of this kind of influenced the kind of backdrop to the election? AFD, which stands for the Alternative for Germany... Um, came into federal government the first time in 2017. So it's a reasonably young party for those um, who are not so familiar with the, the layout, um, but have grown enormously over the last 16 years. And they, 2017, they came into parliament on the backdrop of the so-called refugee crisis. So utterly anti, uh, like utterly racist policies, um, very, um, uh, basic positioning of a people against each other. Now, um, the AFD grow, grew strongly in, in state um, governments and in, in local areas, and in particular in the east, eastern part of um, Germany. And I won't go into detail now because this will uh, be um, beyond this, this um, discussion, but um, the eastern part of Germany have been the, the, the poor cousins and there's no doubt about that ever since reunion, and there's enormous structural issues here. So um, given this, um, they have lost, the AFD has lost in the elections. Um, they lost um, minus 2.3%. Um, and that's they've lost in 13 out of 16 states. So that's quite um, remarkable. However, they are still the largest party in one of the eastern states in Germany. So let's not forget about that as well. Yes, they have lost. But for them to be the largest party is extremely frightening. Uh, that state is, is Thuringia. And ironically, this state um, ha- had a, a Die Linke, um, a prime minister, um, state prime minister for the last few years. So again, lots to think about what has been happening in this state. Nonetheless, um, they are still way too strong. There's no question about that. Um, but 
the the whole issue of um, the anti-lockdown movement. Uh, this movement has a, an interesting name in Germany, which is hard to translate into um, English, but may, I, I would like to call it a bit like the Maverick movement or so. And when they took off, it was really a hodgepodge of, of hippie-style, anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, people generally concerned about restrictions of constitutional liberties, and the far right. And the far right really saw an opportunity here very early to jump onto um, this and use this as an uh, opportunity to exploit sentiment. Now, the AFD was actually quite late to come to the party, and they were a little bit um, disoriented when corona hit and had quite little media presence and little, little to say. It was really quite late um, that they sort of got more involved in the whole anti-lockdown um, movement. But um, I know it's hard for some um, for listeners in Australia to sort of imagine, but really um, the, the whole anti-lockdown movement lost its momentum since um, since June this year when, when things opened up again in Germany. So I would actually say um, that for this election, um, there was not much um, influence um, because we're just at a different state in, in, in the pandemic in Germany. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for that. And I guess now we're going into guess the kind of next kind of aspect that you'll um, you um, that we'll get to talk about a bit more. But I guess we you sort of mentioned before. Um, but I guess when it comes to the left, the main kind of left kind of force is Delinka, which we've been previous um, previously been active of and a member of within Germany. And I guess they have had their kind of worst result ever, kind of electorally um, compared to kind of previous runs. And I guess what is sort of your analysis about um, their decline, um, and what is sort of the implications it has for the left in general within Germany? Look, it actually wasn't their the worst ever. Um, they, um, the linker came to federal parliament the first time in 1998, um, so not long after reunification in the 90s. Um, and they were kicked out again in 2002. So, um, and ever since then, they were, they were back in, in the federal um, Parliament. Now, in Germany, for those who don't know, um, you have to have 5% um, to be able to get a seat in Parliament, or there's a second way of getting in, and that is if you win, if, if three of your candidates um, are elected directly, as in they got a majority vote in their electoral district. So, um, in this election, in fact, Die Linke. I mean, these are the preliminary um, results, only got 4.9%. So in theory, they could have been kicked out. However, they were rescued this time around because they had three um, of their members directly voted by the populace. So, um, look, Die Linke is not a homogenous party. Um, and from from a left terminology perspective, um, the reformist uh, social democratic uh, part of the party is in the majority, and the Linke has made enormous strategic mistakes, um, not only in the lead-up to this election, but um, on, on numerous fronts. There's, there's no um, no question about that. Um, with regard to this election, um, the, 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 they were so confident um, that there was going to be a red-green-red 
federal government opportunity that they really couldn't see beyond it. So the main message that they took into this election was um, we will govern, we will support a social democratic and greens um, government. And in, because they, they ran this message, they stopped being critical. They stopped being critical of the SPD and they stopped being critical of the Greens, even though the Linke's position on some of the key issues when it comes to social security, when it comes to climate change and environment, when it comes to working conditions, the Linke clearly had enormously better positions. But they held back with promoting them or they held back with being critical of the um, SPD and Greens um, in order to um, not alienate them and and um, pursue this 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 vision of being in federal government. Now that that position, that strategic approach to the election, enormously weakens them. And I gave that one example earlier with the um, you know why would you vote for 13 um, euros minimum wage if if the SPD was um, much got much better chances of getting into government and kicking the CDU out um, offers twelve percent. Like there was just not much um, and that voters could see what would actually um, you know benefit them to to be voting um, for the linker when that um, potentially could have meant that the SPD, given that um, I just illustrated how marginally. Um, they won in a, uh, as opposed to the, the CDU, um, would, um, you know, well, why would you in, in that case vote for the, for the linker? So these are some of the strategic uh, positions, um, strategic mistakes. Positions the linker had were, were good, just no question. They were like some of them were solidly left positions. But I think uh, there's one other issue that really had an impact. And this is, again, a bit of a personality um, issue. Um, there's a um, left, um, in fact, she's the, the um, very high-profile leader of the parliamentary faction of, of the Linke. Her name is Sarah Wagenknecht. Now, she, she has a very high um, media profile. It's often being drawn on um, and to be speaking on behalf of the party, etc., and her, she had a um, move away from the linker position uh, publicly, um, and tended towards much more populist positions. Um, and uh, most recently, that was um, pitching workers against so-called middle-class um, diversity issues of racism, oppression, and climate change. So, um, having this. Um, debate out publicly also meant that, of course, the Linke wasn't really perceived as um, as a unified party, but appeared to be very divided and um, and not consolidated on key issues. So I think that that also um, played a role in, in, in the lift uh, in the Linke not um, getting more votes. Um, but one thing I, I do want to mention as well is that um, wherever Die Linke has been active in the movement on the ground, um, there has been a huge membership increase. So this is, of course, totally at odds. So on the one hand, election-wise, 
um, Die Linke has lost votes. But on the other hand, those districts and and branches of Die Linke, um, east or west, where there was active membership and active involvement in campaign, the Lincoln membership has increased dramatically. Um, so this is something to note, and obviously this, there will be a discussion in the Lincoln on, on how to deal with um, this, this um, yeah, bad, bad election results. Um, and, and that will play a role. And lastly, to finish on, um, the Lincoln has also been in uh, participating in government, in state government, mainly in the East, and has lost enormously. And that is because of poor decisions and poor um, yeah, uh, um, positions and, and decisions being made in those governments. I won't go into that, but it, um, like just to give uh, readers, um, listeners an, an idea, um, we're talking about sale of social housing, we're talking about cutting of hospital staff, even during corona crisis. Um, so what that has meant, of course, is that the left has, has given space for anti-capitalist rhetoric and anti-establishment um, rhetoric from the far right. And that's why um, we've seen this this um, huge increase of the AFD in, in this state. I was just mentioning earlier, Turingia, that was um, the linker led and has now the, the far right as the largest party. Hmm. And I guess maybe we can make this kind of the last kind of question, but it, it seems too interesting not to sort of ask you a question about, because um, one of the things that has been reported um, in the kind of left press about um, the German elections, although you've told me that this doesn't necess- isn't necessarily linked to the elections, but there was um, essentially a non-binding referendum within um, Berlin about expropriating real estate um, giants. And I guess, what can you tell us about this referendum, which essentially, from my understanding, has won a, essentially won a victory with 50 percentage kind of support? And I guess, what is its kind of implications? Yeah, look... Um Referendums in, in Germany are, are possible, and in um, this different states have um, slightly different um, positions on this and, and, and um, requirements. And in Berlin, there's quite a history of, of referendums and um, also successful referendums. If a referendum, you have to go through a number of um, steps to be able to hold a referendum. But um, if you do and you get the uh, majority... It means that the state um, then has to act on it. Now, sometimes referendums are called and a um, fledged out piece of legislation is part of the referendum. If that is the case, that was, for instance, the case of the um, Yacht airstrip in in Berlin that um, was maintained as a community um, area. Then the the uh, governing body of Berlin has to enact it because the the piece of legislation is there and it was voted on. And now in this particular referendum, expropriation of real estate giants, um, there was no piece of legislation attached, and so the um, what the governing body now has to do is to act on the referendum. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they will um, follow through. 
So unfortunately, this particular referendum, the way it was maybe worded, I'm not sure if, if, if that's the, the best way of putting it, um, may not actually result in the expropriation. But I want to just quickly give a bit of a backdrop to this. Um, in Berlin, um, Berlin was always a cheap place to live until housing speculation started, and that started around 20 years ago. It has now gone to such an extent that um, people are just being forced out of the housing where they've lived for 30, 40 years. Um, housing poverty is a huge issue in Berlin. Now, in Berlin, up until um, uh, this election, there was a red, red, green government. So Die Linke was part of the government. Now, in, in this particular legislative period, the Linke did actually do some very good things. And one of them was that they introduced a cap on rents in Berlin. That only became effective October, November last year. And what it meant, it meant that some real estate, uh, some, some landlords had to reduce people's rent. Now, I was actually personally affected. My rent went down by a few hundred euros a month. So that was, of course, enormously popular. And it was implemented. It was, it was legislated, it was implemented, it was executed, and, and people loved it. So what then the CDU government did, or the FDP, both of them, they went to the Constitutional High Court and challenged this piece of legislation, and they won. So people, like myself, we had to repay the, the rent that we had saved. So, and, and the campaign for expropriation was raised in this climate. So that the referendum was won is not surprising because housing has been such a hot issue on, on the agenda in Berlin. However, the New Zealand, which was so with the federal election, there were also elections happening in Berlin, as in the state, Berlin is the city-state in the state of Berlin. Um, so now the, um, the, the, the new governing body in, in, in Berlin will not have Die Linke, most likely. So Die Linke introduced the, the whole um, legislation on, on capping the rent. With Die Linke not being in, in government in Berlin... I have, unfortunately, not a lot of hope that this referendum will be uh, enacted on. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for that um, kind of stability. And I guess probably now time to kind of conclude, I guess, this interview, which has been a very useful kind of discussion and very kind of illuminating. Um, and I guess, do you have any, guess, final kind of comments you'd kind of like to make to kind of conclude this discussion? Look, um it's uh, so soon after the elections, it, there's still a lot of um, questions and, and a lot of, um, you know, opportunities to see um, what will actually happening. So there's no decision at this stage what the government will look like. Um, so on the one hand, I think the, the win for the Greens is brilliant. Um, but at the same time, um, on social media, there was already like immediately after the election, this picture circulating with the Greens and the FDP. The FDP is like the equivalent in the Australian context of the, the Democrats, so neoliberal, small business-oriented, that kind of stuff. Um, 
and they were already this, this photo circulating with those two parties, Greens and FDP, um, basically talking intensively um, with a vision of governing, going into a coalition government. And the question is whether that will be with the SPD or whether it will be with the CDU. My guess is that it will be with the SPD. But nonetheless, um, I fear that that means that the Greens will compromise on a lot of um, their uh, more progressive positions. Um, but it remains to be seen. And, yeah, I think watch this space. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for that, um, Sibylla. It's been definitely, as I said before, a very good discussion. Um, thank you very much for being on our program. All right. Um, so we we're just having a discussion with um, Sibylla, um, who is who has just been recently returned to Australia after being based in Germany for the past several years, and was previously an ac- um, active and a member of Delinka within the left. Um, and we just had a bit of a discussion with her about um, the recent federal elections in Germany. Anyway, um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR, and I'm just going to play a quick few announcements, and we'll get back to the rest of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand You could never understand Feel the fortune flowing You know it isn't stuck all right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And I thought just to give listeners a, a bit of a change of pace, um, that would pl- um, spend the next five minutes playing a bit of a song from, um, playing a bit of song. So we'll get it, we'll play Arvent Gardner by Courtney Barnett. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Three CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for Three CR Community Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we're just playing a song before, which was let me just get Advent Avant Gardener by Courtney Barnett. Now. I guess one, um, we're sort of in a bit, we're at seven, it's 7.55 a.m., but I thought I'd just probably start off by, I'll, I'll probably start the Green Left, um, activist calendar a bit kind of early. 
And so I thought I'd go give a bit of announcement for the different kind of events that are kind of happening. So the first kind of event I want to kind of note is on Friday, October the 1st, um, which is today, there is going to be um, a webinar organised by the Palestine Action Group in Sydney titled uh, um, titled Remembering the First in, in Afartai with um, featuring a participant of the First in Afartai. So that's going to be happening at... Um, that's going to be happening at... Six, that's going to be happening at 6 p.m. on um, tonight, and it's going to be and it's going to just be happening online. So if you search Palestine Action Group Sydney, you can get you can get the the details of the event. The next kind of event is there is going to be an online rally um, Saturday, October the second. Don't deport refugees to danger, and that's going to be happening at, um, from tomorrow 6 p.m. Um, to 8 p.m. and it's being organised by the Tamil Refugee Council. And yeah, essentially that's going to be that's um, that's going to be an online rally. And if you search for the Tamil Refugee Council um, Facebook page, you can get you can get the um, the details for the event. Um, the next kind of event is When Prison is a Weapon, the Palestinian Reality, and that's going to be happening on Sunday, um, Sunday, um, the, um, Sunday the, the 3rd of October, and it's being organised by Free Palestine Melbourne and Friends of Palestine um, um, WA, and that's being ha- going to be happening from 8 to 9.30 p.m. And essentially, it's going to, it's going to have a number, a feature, a number of um, speakers in, in terms of the realities of life for prisoners and prison's role in the continuing occupation and oppression of Palestinians. So, yeah, hope listeners um, in, um, are interested in that. Then on Monday, October the 4th, um, there's going to be an online solidarity um Defend the right to protest, and that's going to be happening. Um, that's essentially going to be happening on um, refugee support. Um, this event is essentially going to be taken off the backdrop of essentially 13 re- um, over 30 refugee supporters were fined on the 10th of April 2020 for taking part in a COVID safe car rally to the Marcher Hotel in prison, which rele- housed some 60 Medirac refugees. And of course, the fines total almost 50,000 and are being challenged in court. So essentially, October the 4th is the next kind of court mention date for the Refugee Rights 30. And essentially, yeah, the, this is essentially a placeholder date. So if you find on October the 3rd, they're going to probably release the details because essentially the idea of this action is to encourage sort of um, supporters and activists to kind of tune into the kind of court kind of session and kind of be ready to kind of sort of protest with um, pro sort of refugee sort of messages and so on. <laughs> So yeah, it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily going to be um, it's not going to necessarily be a protest as such because you know when they're not get, um, the people are not going to be protesting in any way during the court proceedings, but it's merely mainly to show support and solidarity for the protesters by essentially just showing your face um, and and so on. All right, and the next kind of event is um, there's going to be an online forum, 20 Years from the Tampa Affair, and that's being organised by um, Law Students for Refugees, and that's going to be um, that's going to be happening on that's going to be that's going to be featuring um, um, lawyer, human rights and refugee advocate Julian Burnside, Guardian journalist Ben Doherty, academic Dr Claire um, Law, um, Dr Claire Lone, and lawyer of human rights and member of the Afghanistan Australian Advocacy Network, Afif Asun. So essentially it's going to be looking at the sort of 
the intricacies of the Tampa affair. And yeah, that's going to be happening from 6.30pm. And if you search for Law Students for Refugees Facebook page, you can sort of get the details of the event on how to link up with the Zoom and so on. Um, and then the next kind of event is um, there's going to be an online forum, Media and Exile, Press Freedoms and um, Myanmar. And that's going to be, um, that's been organised by the Wheeler Centre. So if you search up the Wheeler Centre, Media and Exile, Press Freedoms and Myanmar, you should be able to get the details to sign up. And the next kind of um, event is on Thursday, October the 7th, um, is, um, is going to be the Righteous anti um ACOS caucus and that's been organized um that's going to be that's going to be have a number of different kind of speakers it's actually been organized by one of our fellow, uh, presenter at FreeCR Jacob Grench and that's going to be featuring a number of prominent kind of speakers including Guy Rundle, Scott London, Felicity Ruby, um Dimmy Hawkins, Clinton Fernandos, Jacob Grench and Dave Sweeney. So essentially it's going to be it's going to be a, a national it's kind of it's it's attempt to kind of organize a kind of national kind of response to this whole issue of the war drive, the ACOS um, alliance, and also this new, recently new, new nuclear sub-deal. So, yeah, you can get the details if um, you search um, online forum, Rakius Anti-ACOS um, Caucus. And then on Saturday, October the 9th, um, there's going to be an online forum, How Do We Win in Palestine? And that's going to be um, a public meeting organised by AAWL. And yeah, you can, if you search, you can get the, the, the details, um, if you go on the Australian Asia Workers Links, um, Facebook um, page or website and yeah, you can get the details for that there. Now, the next kind of event I want to sort of highlight is there's going to be an online, there's going to be an online kind of climate strike on Friday, October the 15th. And that's sort of part of the kind of national kind of climate strikes. And then the next kind of thing is the, Eco-Socialism um, 2021 System Change, Not Climate Change Conference, which is going to be happening online from October the 22nd to October the 24th. And if you go onto the website, ecosocialism.org.au, or go into the Green Left website, you can get all the details for the agenda and everything on there. Okay, so the next um, the next um, kind of thing I want to, um, to kind of talk about um, talk about is I might just play, I guess, a quick kind of announcement and we might get on to discussing some news stories. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And... One of the kind of things we wanted to kind of talk about, I guess, for the rest of the program, um, for the rest of the program has been we're kind of going into the lead up to Comp 26. And essentially it is, it's basically all the kind of political leaders are going to be meeting together in Glasgow to discuss the real issues of, of the day, which is climate change. And now, of course, I'm not dismissing the issue of climate change, but I'm more sort of, 
taking issue with the fact that a lot of these kind of political leaders, um, are go- which are essentially are responsible for making the crisis worse, are going to be having this kind of nice, you know, meeting um, where they're going to kind of discuss how they're going to deal with the client issue. And it's probably going to, um, in my view, probably not going to amount to necessarily kind of much. And um, many probably listeners... Um, I'm probably familiar with Greta Thunberg, who has played this really sort of amazing kind of leadership role in terms of leading the, the, this whole kind of climate kind of strike kind of movement. And in fact, one of the, um, the amazing things is, I mean, this is a bit hard to sort of imagine in um, lockdown Australia, while we're locked down in, or at least Melbourne and Sydney. Um, you're not necessarily locked down if you uh, if you're listening to this from Brisbane, but. The, the one of the kind of, um, there was actually, there's actually been quite some amazing kind of protests in the lead up to the Comp 26 around, um, some client protests. So in Germany, there was actually, um, cause we were just talking about, um, the German elections. Greta Thunberg actually spoke at a, quite a big, um, rally within Germany, um, that was basically calling for, which was basically a massive kind of climate kind of strike. Now, and essentially Greta Thunberg had a lot of kind of comments to kind of, um, kind of say about, you know, all of these promises that these global leaders have made um, with um, deal, um, in terms of addressing climate change. And she kind of dismissed them as essentially blah, 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 um, which I think is actually uh, <laughs> a kind of good comment from Greta because, you know, in actual reality, the political leaders have been talking for years about how serious the issue of climate change has been, yet... For most of these Western governments, they're still presiding over um, over co- of over coal mine exports. They're still presiding over um, massive kind of environmentally kind of dangerous um, uh, environmental kind of projects. They're essentially and they have not taken any action against the fossil fuel kind of billionaires that essentially dominate um, the political system. And in fact, little of the ac- a lot of the action that these governments have kind of committed to has all been based on the market. And essentially, you know, the market has not been has failed in terms of delivering and in terms of addressing the climate crisis. Um, maybe I could leave it to Ari if you want to have any extra comments on this. Well, I think, like you said, it's a very salient point from Greta that it's a lot of the rhetoric is basically just blah, 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 you know, net zero by 2050 or whatever, blah, 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 green economy, blah, 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 whatever. Like, like you said, the, the difference between governments saying that they'll do something or leaders saying that they'll do something and them actually doing something is a very wide gulf. There's, there's a lot of rhetoric going around and not a lot of action. And that's, you know, realistically, of course, that's the way the system likes it. doesn't like change, doesn't want to change. Um, and I think we are probably going to also talk about Morrison in the context of some, <clears throat> in the context of the whole climate crisis stuff. And it's just kind of thinking about it, his, trip to the US a little while ago was a very good example of the blah, 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 net zero 2050 or whatever, the blah, 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 the whole, the way he talked about in that there's so, such vague ways that, you know, Australia is going to be strong and we're going to do the thing maybe. And, you know, ideally we'd like to have met some goals by 2050, but, you know, we don't have a hard timeline or whatever. Like all of the, the vagary about what Morrison was saying is a very good example of that sort of 
the blah, blah, blah rhetoric that, you know, I'm saying things because I'm supposed to say things, but that's different from whether or not I'm actually going to do anything ever. And I think one of the other things that I want to kind of extend a bit on some of Greta Thunberg's comments and um, quote a bit from her, and this is from a report in The Guardian about some of the things she said. So Greta essentially said in a speech to the Youth for Climate Summit in Milan, Italy, that, you know, build back better, blah, 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 greens economy, blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, 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 you know. She essentially then followed that with said, this is all we hear from our so-called leaders, words that sound great but have so far not led to action. Our hopes and ambitions drown in their empty promises. And, of course, you know, we need constructive dialogue, um, said Funberg. And But, you know, they've essentially, she then points out that we've had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has this led us? You know, essentially, as kind of Greta kind of fired, we've, We've, I've, as someone who's been involved in sort of um, activism since 2013, not a whole lot has actually changed. But the climate, in terms of the government policy around climate change, yet, um, yet for some reason, yet, um, and yet the crisis continues to get worse, and yet we still have governments, you know, hand wriggling, making the all these sort of essentially kind of empty kind of promises and nothing to back it kind of up. So I think, you know, I think, I think it's, it's kind of great, um, that, you know, Greta is sort of pointing, pointing this out, pointing the kind of inaction of our, of the, the political leaders in terms of addressing, um, the, the real issue of climate change. And I guess going into, um, you know, um, getting into, um, getting into the next kind of point, talking about, I guess, Australia's kind of role in all this. So, Talk, um, drawing from the, the, this week's kind of green left, um, um, fighting fund column, um, which has the art, um, from the article titled Morrison must face the music at comp 26. And to start off, I guess a bit of discussion drawing from this article. Um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, um, basically said, um, is that he is, unlikely to attend the Comp26 conference in Glasgow because he will have a lot of issues to manage in November when Australia opens up. I mean, as if he does anything really, like, you I mean, he can just leave it all to his bureaucrats. Um, now, however, domestic issues, um, you know, domestic issues, you know, the hypocrisy of this statement is so-called domestic issues did not stop Morrison from flying into the United States for a week to secure ACOS, the new military pact with the US and Britain, which, to be honest, I think some, you know, regard, yeah, you, you know, that that just reflects everything I think about Morrison's kind of priorities. And, of course, climate action has essentially, as, um, as the author of this article points out from Green Left, has never been a priority for Morrison, you know, who he has essentially would rather conspire with imperialist powers against China than um, than tackle climate change. And of course, you know, the failure of the the Morrison government to address the climate crisis is really the fact that the go- government is essentially kowtowing to the fossil fuel industry. The Liberal National Coalition receives huge donations from the fossil fuel sector and in return supports new coal, gas and oil projects. Yeah, and, of course, meanwhile, we have this blatant disregard for climate science being promoted by pro-mining climate change sceptics within the National Party. And, and of course, you know, 
the National Party, and we have the national, um, a recent comment from the National Party Senator Mark Canavan, who recently announced he is dead set against net zero emissions. And I think, you know, <laughs> uh, if, if Morrison were to kind of attend, um, COP26, even though, you know, we, we would sort of being very kind of critical of it. I mean, the one thing to put into context is even in the context of global kind of capitalism, Morrison and the Morrison government is actually even well short of 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 that. Um, in fact, even by conservative um, standards, the government's failure to reduce emissions lags far behind other developed nations. Australia ranks last on climate sustainability goals, according to the United Nations Sustainable Development Report, and released in June. And of course, international leaders. Um, would um, are calling for Morrison to commit to a target of net zero emissions by 2050, which would mean Australia would at least be keeping up with a commitment made by 130k. And of course, but the problem with this, you know, according to a recent Climate Council report, you know, net zero by 2050 is is just nonsense. Um, it is not really enough to address the crisis. Australia needs to really be at at least net zero 2035 to alleviate climate change. Although to be fair. Climate activists have been going on about 100% renewable energy by 2020, and of course we're not even we haven't even, we're already past 2020, and that's just um, no, that's just says everything about that inaction. And of course, you know, the report also states um, this kind of climate council report, you know, states that Australia is spending public money in ways that exorbitate the climate changes, including handing out billions of subsidies to fossil fuel companies. And, of course, um, Australia's sort of actions would also have exacerbate the impacts of climate change on countries in the Asia-Pacific, which is already experiencing rising sea levels, water and food insecurity, and severe weather events. Worsening conditions would, force, um, would increase displacement and force migration, the report said. And of course, Pacific Island nations have repeatedly tried and failed to get government, Australian governments to take emissions reduction seriously, most notably at the Pacific Islanders Forum where, um, in Tuluva in 2019, where Morrison notoriously insulted and bullied Pacific na- nation leaders by obstructing an agreement on climate action. And I think, you know, the, the, the Morrison, at the same time, the Morrison government is actually, in some sense, facing certain pressure from within. The New South Wales coalition government has, in, to its credit, I mean, it's still not sufficient enough, but, I mean, they, they've announced a plan to reduce emissions by 50% by 2050. Even New South Wales Premier Gladys Berkshani, like other capitalists who can see the economic um, opportunities from going green, said she is serious about helping the world decarbonise. And I think, you know, really to kind of end this kind of discussion, I mean, really, I mean, in terms of like, you know, the role, it is kind of like the role of programs like Green Left Radio and, of course, publications like Green Left, um, you know, to, to support and to give voice to the climate kind of struggles. Because really, the only way we're kind of going to overcome really this climate crisis is going to be through the actions of ordinary working class people and also people taking action um, to... Um, to put the pressure on the governments to actually deliver on on um, taking action around climate change. So, and also putting people um, exposing how the capitalist class continuously puts profit before people. And if you want to support Green Left in that effort, you can go to greenleft.org.au and hit the support us button. 
for as little as $5 a month, you can s- subscribe to Green Left and get the digital edition um, every month. So help us uh, keep shining a light on these issues. But <clears throat> to kind of follow up on that discussion as well, one of the things that has sort of struck me, I guess, especially since Biden got elected in the U.S. and in theory is going to be more progressive on climate change than especially Trump was, <clears throat> is that in a way it means that Australia serves as the kind of the far-right conspiracy theorist of the climate action sort of movement, so to speak, among governments, in the sense that uh, historically, not as much anymore because, you know, now we have the right-wing conspiracy theorists in office, but historically the right-wing conspiracy theorist serves as a great sort of scapegoat for the conservatives or right-wing to point at and go, at least I'm not that guy. So now everybody, all these governments who can say good things and do a little bit, they do a little bit, they can all point to Australia and say, at least we're not that guy. It's sort of, you know, as obviously shit, as obviously bad as our approach is, or, you know, the Australian federal government's approach is to it, they do serve this sort of useful purpose, I think, for the the global capitalist system, in that, you know, they serve as a good scapegoat or a good kind of point of comparison, because, you know... We're not going to, Morrison's not going to yield to pressure, really. And especially with the new alliance, the, um, you know, Australia, UK, US alliance, I don't think that Australia is going to actually get that much pressure from the US and the UK, which I feel, I think would be the only people that Morrison would be, have any likelihood of listening to about the issue in the first place. <clears throat> so it's kind of, a conundrum, I suppose. And I think, I mean, going into um, some other aspects, I think, because this is actually quite a big discussion, and, I mean, we, we kind of talk, um, is, I guess, one of the sort of interesting kind of things about this is, you know, I think there has been a certain sort of level of kind of progressive kind of opinion, um, not necessarily from the kind of left, but more sort of like the sort of broad sort of section of, of kind of society um, that has kind of like almost put this sort of argument of sort of arguing kind of for kind of illusions within the sort of Biden sort of presidency, because, you know, the Biden kind of presidency is speaking a bit more about taking action on climate change. Mm. But at the same time, you know, in we, we just talked about how the Australian government is so far behind even developed countries. And, you know, the likes of Nancy Pelosi from the Democrats were actually quoted as saying that they think Australia is a leader in climate, um, Mm. in taking action in climate change. So it's sort of like, you know, (laughs) for all these sort of illusions in in these sort of liberals, um, or like Joe Biden, um, who are essentially liberal capitalist kind of politicians, you Mm. know, it, it doesn't actually seem to match up to even the kind of reality. Yeah, that's true, actually. I had forgotten that that happened because it's so absolutely ridiculous. It feels mostly like good evidence that Nancy Pelosi doesn't know anything about Australia rather than um, any reflection of public opinion. But who knows? I I often feel like, um, and this is slightly a diversion maybe, but I often feel like people, like especially in the US and maybe the UK, but who knows, that uh, people get confused by the fact that our arch-conservative party are called the Liberal Party. <clears throat> and, yeah, well, um, 
I'll just go play a quick announcement, and I just have one last sort of news story I want to kind of draw from from the pages for Green Left that we can just conclude the discussion about. So you're listening to Green Left Radio. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio and... Just for the last kind of part of the program, I thought I would um, draw from this um, recently published Green Left article titled Victoria Police Use of Anti-Riot Weapons Condemned. And we've been talking um, quite a bit about... Um, last week, we kind of had a bit of a discussion about these anti-lockdown protests that have been happening within Melbourne last week, um, which kind of dominated kind of the headlines. And one of the kind of things we can't really forget is, okay, we don't support these anti-lockdown protests, we don't support these anti-vaxxer protests, but there has been a bit of kind of concern, um, which has been the police kind of response to these kind of protests. Now, you know, some sense I... You know, looking at some of the footage of of these of these protests, there's nothing really to sympathise with with these protests. And in, in some sense, you know, some of these protesters have actually, you know, just looking at some of the footage, they've deliberately been violent in a way that I've never seen other protests being like 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 literally there was footage I've seen of some of these anti-lockdown protests of protesters literally sort of going and trying to beat up the police. On the other hand, though, what has been kind of troubling, and this is in the context of the massive amount, and this is this predates even the pandemic, but the, the state government of um, the Daniel Andrews government has always put massive amounts of funding in the Victorian police. And essentially, what we've kind of seen is the police are essentially using new kind of non-lethal weapons against anti-racks and anti-lockdown protests. And in fact, um, they first deployed these non-lethal weapons in August and have then recently used them against protesters, including at the War Memorial on September 22nd. And of course, these non-lethal weapons include foam baton rounds, which are foam tip um, bullets deployed from a semi-automatic rifle, and of course there are pepper balls, scenario balls containing an um pep powder that is dispersed on impact. And then, of course, we're hearing reports that the Victorian police is used uh, um, use a semi-automatic weapon to shoot these, as well as pellets cloned dye to be able to identify the person for arrest. And of course, stunner grenades are also being used. They're rolled into a crowd that explode with light and smoke, also releasing nine rubber bullets that disperse to waist height with a range of five metres. Now, I think, you know, as I kind of said, you know, these kind of instances of unprovoked police violence, I think, are just even unacceptable, even when they're used against, um, you know, directly, um, directly used against um, um, very far-right kind of protests. And I think the other issue as well is essentially, um, I think I feel my kind of analysis, and this is sort of analysis that's sort of drawn from the article, is because there's justifiably no real public sympathy for these anti-vaccination slash anti-lockdown protesters, I feel that, you know, the Victoria Police being obviously a political institution um, that operate politically, 
you know, they're essentially pushing to justify their use of such weapons against, in the context of the, the repression of these kind of protests. And of course, you know, former Victorian police riot squad head Jeff Morks told the Herald Sun on September 24th that the police should be able to use water cannons and more on the anti-vaccination and anti-lockdown protests. And of course, you know, he was quoted as saying, this just reflects everything about how the police sink and you know, sometimes you've got to sink outside the square. My gut feeling is to bring out the tear gas and give it to them. And, like, that's just, yeah, I think just a completely outrageous comment. Um, and I don't think anyone on the left should be supporting that. And, of course, the other things as well is, you know, the police have also other cryo dispersed weapons, such as the controversial long-range acoustic device weapon, which admits a high frequency to sound that dis- temporarily disables those in its vicinity by causing nausea and hearing impairment. Now, that, I think, is a very, I'm kind of, that kind of... Is fearful. I'm a bit fearful about that. Yeah. yeah. In fact, it's some. Um, but it feels like you know, if, if we, it feels like if this is going to be the the state of play for for the police, if they have these weapons, we're going to have to start bringing not just we're not just going to have to start bringing face masks to protests and mm. um, Google's to prevent ourselves from getting pepper sprayed. We're going to now have to bring earplugs. Yeah, though, to be fair, you probably want that for the shock grenades as well. Yeah. (laughs) But I just wanted to quickly jump in and make the point that, um, and this came up a lot with the coverage of the the mostly Black Lives Matter protests last year in the U.S., but it's generally, it's really more accurate to call these riot control weapons less lethal rather than non-lethal. Because, I mean, especially in the U.S., a bunch of people have been killed by rubber bullets and shock grenades and stuff like that because of... Primarily misuse, sure, but it's, they are still, they still have the capacity to be lethal. And I just wanted to bring that up. That like, in the same way that, you know, just because these, uh, this is a, you know, unpopular or like very condemnable movement doesn't mean that like, that we should condone the use of possibly lethal force against them is, <clears throat> I think is one of the big, takeaways on this and i think that like you said there's not only like a extreme lack of sympathy for anti-lockdown protests but in as well there's sort of um there's kind of almost like a bloodlust about them in some ways i think a lot of people (coughs) pardon me and i particularly see this on in the u.s you know through reddit and twitter and the social media of various kinds but there's almost this sort of reveling in like you know, examples of people who post anti-COVID or, you know, conspiracism stuff on Facebook who then die of COVID or whatever. Or there's that sort of kind of glee that people take in harm coming to people. And I think that that is, again, one of the kind of almost the instigating factors for the police use of force here is that, like, not only do we, you know, do people mostly not care about these anti-lockdown protesters, but some people kind of take glee in this because, like, Sure, it it is true that these protests do put people in harm's way, but like comparatively, again, the police are using potentially lethal force. And you know that of course this sort of stuff, like you were saying, Jacob, with the the Andrews government kind of love of the police, let's say, you know that this sort of stuff is gonna get used against progressive protests down the road as well. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not in the same way, but it will. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one one thing to not acknowledge, because I think um, this is the last comment I end on, because I think we're going to finish up the program. I think, you know, the fact that I think the police um, didn't actively repress that massive Black Lives Matter protest in Melbourne last year, despite the fact that it took place, 
you know, in a heavy kind of restricted kind of lockdown. I think that that just reflects, though, that, you know, the important kind of issue, I mean, while this is definitely a big concern, obviously, I think, you know, the most important thing is, you know, we have the power of of the mass and you know if we can activate that power that can in some sense counteract against you know this level kind of repression and you know because i mean essentially the police are going all out that these anti-lockdown protests because they don't have a map they they have weak base of support but you know imagine if we had if we had a left and a mass movement that had mass kind of support would kind of be able to overcome that so i think that's just one thing to sort of acknowledge and but i think um I know you probably want to make a comment, but we're actually just right out of time. So of course. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Uh, I've been Ari. Go to worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com to listen to my podcast. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank And thank you all for listening. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and stay tuned for what it, the next program that's going to be on Earth Matters. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 206. Arise you workers from your slumbers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise! We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your beds and that crap.